The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. I'm, uh, I'm just really glad to be here today. There's no place I'd rather be. I love being with the, I just feel like this is like a family reunion to me every Sunday. Just get together with family and it's, uh, I love it. We are working right now on 1 Thessalonians and uh, we're going to be looking this morning at the last two verses of chapter 1. Um, we saw last week that this body of believers was very committed to their relationship with Christ. They were, as John would say, abiding in Christ, and they were having an impact on the world in which they live. These are not your average Christians. These people are shaking up their world. Look again at what Paul said about them. We looked at this last week, verses 6 and 7. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. These believers were imitators of the apostles and of the Lord. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, to all believers, be imitators of God. So they're doing that. They're being an example to all believers. Now, the significance here is this is the only verse in the New Testament where a congregation is viewed as a model for other churches. That tells you a lot about this church. This was an exceptional church. And please remember that they are less than a year old in their relationship with the Lord. They are modeling Christ to the world in which we live. They are being image bearers. Verse 8 says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. This verse is an explanation of how the Thessalonians became examples to such large areas of people. And no doubt the wide circulation of their faith was facilitated by Thessalonica being a a Mediterranean seaport, having the Ignatian Way there, the the main road from Rome to the eastern part of the empire. So basically, they're just preaching to the sailors, they're preaching to the merchants, they're preaching to everybody... And then these people are getting back on their ships or back on the road and they're just taking the gospel everywhere. And Paul says, it's gone everywhere. We don't even need to say anything. In other words, I'm a missionary. and They already heard the gospel. You're you're carrying it throughout the empire by what you're doing. This morning we want to look at these. Well, we want to start looking at these two verses, okay? I thought for sure I could cover these, but uh, you'll understand, okay? (laughs) For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, I think what we see in this verse corresponds to what we saw in verse 3. He says, you turn to God, you're serving God, you're waiting for His Son. If you look at verse 3, he talks about faith, love, and hope. And I think turning to God from idols shows their faith. Serving God reflects their love. And waiting for Yeshua to return reveals their hope. Now he says, For they themselves report concerning us 
The they here refers to those in Macedonia and Achaia who have heard the gospel from the Thessalonians. All right, we see that in verse 8. He talks about you and Macedonia and Achaia, and then they themselves, that refers to them. So these people, the people from Macedonia and Achaia, are now reporting to Paul about what kind of entrance the apostolic team had in Thessalonica. So by they themselves here, he is saying that people everywhere are telling us, Paul and his missionary team, about you. They're telling us what kind of reception we had when we were with you. I mean, they're all talking about this thing. He says, they themselves report concerning the kind of reception. Now, the term translated here, reception, is from the Greek word, asados, which can mean the act of entering a place, you just walk in the door, or even the place through which one enters, the entrance. The same word is found in 2.1, where it says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you. Same word, asados. And here it clearly speaks of the apostles' reception in the city. As a matter of fact, the reception of the apostles is the principal theme of chapter 2, 1 through 12. So we know what this is talking about. So we understand it's the same way in 1, 9. They themselves are ones who heard the story from the Thessalonians who now retell it to Paul. So these people, are they heard about what happened. They're telling him, look, when, when Paul and the missionary team came in here, this is what happened, and, and we just got so excited, and we trusted the gospel, and they're telling these people. Then these people are going back and telling Paul, and they're saying, wow, they were excited about what happened there when you got there, and just the great reception and everything that was going on. Both the words reception and the past tense verb, we had, which is an aorist indicative pointing to a historical fact, refer to the original preaching, and reception of the gospel message. So they're just, Paul and is going places and he's hearing all about what happened. He knows what happened at this. And like he was there, but he's hearing that they're so excited about it that they're telling everybody. It's not only them that know. All okay in Macedonia has heard about what's going on there. He says, how you turn to God from idols. Now the word turn here is epistrepho, which according to Thayer means to turn to to the worship of the true God. Many see this and they take this verse as referring to conversion. And there are some verses where it may be used that way, but I see this as a post-conversion act. Okay, let me show you why I see that. Acts 11.21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned. So here we see that the ones who believe turn to the Lord. So it's a post-conversion act. It, they turn to the Lord because they believed. And believed here is an aorist participle active. And the aorist participle often refers to an action prior to another verb. So prior to turning, they believe. That's why they turned. Because they did believe. Look at Luke uh, 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And turned again here is our same word, epistrepho. So the Lord's telling Peter, you're going to fail. But after you fail, you're going to come back. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter did just that. 
He denied the Lord, he turned away, but he came back and he came back with a vengeance. And on Pentecost, he begins to preach and things begin to happen. So epistrepho, turning to the Lord is the idea. And I think it's significant here that it refers to believers. You believe and then you turn to God. Like I said, it can be used of conversion. And sometimes I think it might be used that way, but I think many times it's not. Look at James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth, that happens, people, right? People wander from the truth. And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So bringing him back here twice is epistrepho. And it's used of a believer turning back to the truth. Now, the meaning of the verb sozo here, save, As English thinkers, we hear that word and we think salvation, saved from damnation. Most often, it's used of being saved from a bad situation. Okay, And he says, you're going to save his soul from death. Now, the Greek expression, sozentensuke, to save a a soul from death, that's the standard way of saying to save a life. In other words, to save a life from the damage that sin brings. You turn the sinner, you'll save his soul from death, and you'll cover a multitude of sins. Believers, we all have times in our lives when we need to turn back to God from sin. I think that should be obvious. None of us are perfect, and we do fall into sin. And turning to God is something that should be ongoing in our lives because we're always failing. So we turn back to God. And, and people, it's so important that we do this as soon as possible because sin is just plain ugly. And it's damaging. It breaks the heart of God and it ruins the lives of people. If you fail to turn from your sin to God in your life, you will ultimately destroy your own life. I think people think God's trying to keep us from having fun. No, He's trying to keep us from being destroyed. So he tells us, don't do that. You know, and it's not so much a question as, well, God punishes you for your sins if you sin. No, sin brings about its own punishment. When a parent tells a child, don't touch the hot stove, and the child disobeys and touches it anyway, what happens? Ah, they just learned a life lesson, right? The child gets burned. Who burned the child? The angry, vindictive parent? No, the stove burned the child. The loving parent tried to encourage the child not to touch that stove in the first place. This is why we need to repent. We need to live a life apart from sin. We need to turn back to God because sin brings damage in our lives. And these new believers at Thessalonica, they turned to God and it says they turned from idols. They were idol worshipers. And here's what's interesting Christianity should cause a stir wherever it goes, people. It just should. And when the Christian faith arrived in the cities and towns of the empire, its presence was rightly perceived as an attack on their gods. And it was. Okay? And it was. Look at Acts 19, 22 through 28. There's where we understand this whole idea. <clears throat> and having sent unto Macedonia two of the helpers, Timothy and Erastus, He himself stayed in Asia for a while, 
About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's Christianity. They're called the way, because we are the way. For, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. He's making little idols. He's got his little shop there where you can come and buy a little idol to worship. It brought no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, hey, this guy's making good money selling these little shrines, okay? These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. So he calls all these other idol makers together and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, right? That's how we're making our money. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, I love that, all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. He's hurting their business, okay? That makes them mad. It says, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may become in disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence. She whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The Christians were messing up their business. That should be true today. Abortion clinics should be shutting down because of our voices. Who else is going to have that voice? A lot of things should be disrupted because of our voice. Because we have the voice. Well, these Thessalonians, they worshipped a variety of gods. Some being traditional, others being imports from Samothrace or Egypt or Rome. What's interesting at this time, very, very little atheists. Because there were just too many gods, so you just pick one of them, all right? In Greece, they had many idols. They had deified basically all the emotions of man. All right, they had a God of love, they had a God of hate, a God of fear, a God of peace, a God of joy. They just deified everything. They worshipped Aphrodite, they worshipped Narcissus, they worshipped Bacchus, they worshipped Zeus, and all these various idols. But these new Christians had turned from the idols to worship the true and the living God. And most likely, their abandonment from these idols was what brought on them the persecution they were suffering. You disrupt the norm. People don't like that. These are our gods. Where are you coming up with new gods now? Oh, they turned away from those things. Now, commenting on this verse, one commentator writes this. The implication of this verse is that the converts to the faith in Thessalonica were not Jewish but Gentile. Or at least that the vast majority of the church was Gentile. What do you think about that? Is that a convincing proof? It says, because they turn from idols, does that mean they're Gentiles? Let me ask you something. Did the Jews have a problem with idolatry? <laughs> no? Majorly, okay? Ezekiel 14.6, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Repent, and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abomination. <clears throat> Constantly, Israel was turning to idols. 
So I don't think this necessarily has to refer to Gentiles. I think Gentiles are involved, but I don't think, well, we're going to cut Israel either because you know Israel. They were always good and they never worshipped idols. No, they had a major problem with that. Now, commenting on our text here, Bob Deffenbaugh writes this. Notice from these words how the Thessalonian saints manifest divine election. Oh, let me back up. Manifest divine election. They turned to God from the idols they had formerly worshipped. So again, this is the same idea again that you see people's works, and if they're doing good works, that's proof they're elect. Okay? And, and I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Here's my problem. When people aren't doing those works, then what do they say? Well, you're not a Christian. Okay? You're not a Christian if you're not doing that. So that's the idea that this works. I just hate this idea that works are proof that you're saved. They're not. As we said last week, the evidence of election, the evidence of salvation is faith, not works. Spurgeon wrote this. Conversion is the turning of a man completely around to hate what he loved and to love what he hated. Now that sounds good, but let me ask you this. When you became a Christian, did you all of a sudden hate what you loved? I did not. Okay, yeah, some of it, but I did not. I mean, I'd read Corinthians, you know, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And I'd be like, I don't know if I'm a Christian. Everything had, that's talking about your relationship with Adam. Now you're in Christ. It's not talking about your daily life and now you're living all the good things. No, this is a lifelong process. And some people still love the things they should hate. Sin has an attraction to it. This should be our goal to hate those things, but <laughs> it takes some time. And for some people, more time than others, okay? Let me ask you a question, serious question here. Can a Christian serve idols? <laughs> what if the Thessalonians had not turned from idols, would they still be Christians? What do you think? Can a Christian serve idols? Yeah, you think so? 1 John 5.21 Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, little John, I mean, little John. (laughs) Little John. Yeah, in Robin Hood here. John uses little children as synonymous with believers. So John is saying, believers, keep yourselves from idols. Now, if I can't be an idolater, why would you tell me to keep myself from an idol? Is just John just wasting his breath here or what? Why would he tell his readers that if a believer can't worship an idol? You know, the problem is, I think, when we think of an idol, we may think of somebody in a mud hut. It's got this little shrine, and they're bowing down to this shrine in the mud hut. Or, or maybe you think of some huge, elaborate pagan temple with all this ornate you know, stuff and gods all over and burning incense. Here's what I want you to understand. Idolatry is much broader than that. Idolatry is simply thinking something about God that is untrue of Him. It's postulating anything about God that is not right. And in its fullest stage, it's creating a God. And this is what most people do today. They create a God that they like, that goes along with what they're doing, and then they're comfortable. Yes, I love God. And He's cool with me, 
Because I've made him in my own image and he's just what I want him to be. In the secondary stage, it's making the God who is into something that he is not. And maybe in its third stage, something that even Christians are guilty of, it's thinking thoughts about God that are untrue of him. They're just not true. Stan talked about that a little this morning. God's holy, and to say he's not is to be like an atheist. You're saying there's no God. Look what God says. He says, these things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. God says, you thought I was like you? No. That's precisely what men have done. They have made God into their own likeness and into imaginations that belong to their own minds. The essence of idolatry is entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of God, and it can come in a lot of different forms, people. And I think most Christians think that just because they don't have some little shrine they're bowing down to and worshiping, that everything is good. Here's the thing, again, since context is so important. If we look at the context of 1 John 5, 21, you can't go down, that's the last verse, so you've got to go up. We see that verse 20 that John has just mentioned that Yeshua is the true God. And then he says, keep yourself from idols. In other words, um, you better be thinking right about Yeshua. And this undoubtedly brought to his mind the false gods of the heretics that John was dealing with. They denied the God of the Bible. They said the Christ came upon the man, Yeshua, at his baptism and left prior to his crucifixion. But they didn't believe that he is the eternal God in human flesh. They denied his deity. So I think that John is telling his readers that if they have a substandard view and understanding of Yeshua the Christ, the Son of God, that's idolatry. Anything that is short of Yeshua the Christ, revealed as God, is idolatry. And since John has spent almost the entire letter discussing in one form or another the opponents with their false teaching who are troubling the Christian community he's writing to, it's not surprising to find out find him here referring to them here. He is using metonymy. The secessionists, the opponents themselves, are put for the course of idolatry they pursue. There is significant background in Qumran literature for such usage. For example, in Qumran CD 28, now CD here means the Book of the Covenant. It's also called the Cairo Damascus Document, CD. It says, those who reject the precepts and set up idols in their hearts and walk in the stubbornness of their hearts, they shall have no share in the house of the law. If you go to Qumran 1 QS, now 1 means it's found in cave 1. This is a fragment that was found in the first cave. They're all labeled by the caves they're found in. Cursed be the man who enters the covenant while walking among the idols of his heart, who sets up before himself his stumbling block of sin so that he may backslide. So, believer, we have to understand an idol can be anything that usurps the rightful place of the living and the true God in your life. And at the root of all idolatry is the God of self, because that's where most of us worship. The God of self. Well, the Thessalonians didn't just add Yeshua to their existing shelf full of idols. They trashed their idols. And they turned to the living and the true God alone. Which demonstrated that they were disciples of Yeshua. They were abiding and they were all in. We're walking away from this stuff. 
We're going after the true. We're going after the living God. You know, I, I can't help when I think about idolatry and I think about America, I think about sports. How many people worship sports teams? People they've never met, people they don't know, but they just love these people and they bow down to that TV and worship them and their life is disrupted if they lose. It's confusing to me. Unless you got a bet on the game, I guess, then it would affect your life. Other than that, how does it affect you? You know? People, Christians come to church and they're bored to tears, but they go and watch their game and they're painting themselves and yelling and screaming and I just like, ah, somehow... That's connected with idolatry. Just my feelings, okay? <laughs> Again, an idol is anything that usurps the rightful place of the true and living God in your life. Well, the Thessalonians, they turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now, the word serve here is from the Greek word deluo. It's a present infinitive and means they turn from idols and continue to serve the true and the living God. Now, the word here, deluo, means to be a slave. Now, we think of service, oh, I'll serve this, I'll do this. But you got to understand the slave mentality is totally different. This word is often used of nations that are in subjection to other nations. They're slaves. Now, a slave belonged to his master who had bought him or taken him in war. So a slave lived to do his master's will. And basically, that's the comparison here. Christians, we are not our own because we have been bought with a price, which is the precious blood of Yeshua, and we are to be his slaves. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price. So glorify God. And your body. Now, John MacArthur writes this. He says, Beloved, it is so simple to say, this, to say to you this. Nobody ever comes to Jesus Christ who does not immediately engage himself as a slave to God. Whose basic reason for living is obedience and submission. So nobody ever comes to Christ who doesn't immediately Engage himself as a slave. You know, here's my problem with this stuff, people. This does so much damage to the body of Christ. Because you got Christians out there, young Christians, struggling Christians, they're like, that puts me, I'm not in that category. I must not be saved. And if you don't think you're saved, what is your desire for living the Christian life? Any? No. But if you understand God saved you by His grace, that's complete, that's full, that's free. He asks you to do this. There's a motivation there. Because I'm secure in Him. And security is my motivation to live for the Lord who bought me. And nonsense like this. These are damaging sayings. This is why BBN here took MacArthur off the air. They felt he was hurting the believers. And I applauded them for doing that. That's amazing. Because most people go along with this whole idea. This is what Christianity is about. You've got to be perfect. You've got to be a slave. Just as soon as you come to Christ, boom! It's like the old commercials. I'm dating myself. The white knight on the horse with the lance, and he goes by, and everything's all white and clean. Remember, remember those commercials? You know, that's how people view Christianity. Righteousness. Listen to me. Righteousness is imputed to a believer. 
not imparted. You understand the difference? It's put to your account. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm righteous. Everything I do is righteous. Look at me. No. It should be, and hopefully you'll move in that direction. But God put His righteousness on your account, and that's how you stand before Him. I don't care how you're living. So people, I think we're called to become slaves, but that doesn't happen immediately. There has to be an understanding of the truth of the Word of God. We have to understand our position. We have to understand what God calls us to. Here Paul calls Yeshua the living and the true God. Where does this title come from? Anybody know? Paul just make this up? Hey, let me call him this. Let me ask you something. Where did the writers of the New Testament get their phraseology and their terminate the stuff the, the language they use where does it come from thank you so if you want to understand the new testament read the tanakh learn the tanakh these guys didn't make stuff up when they got to the new testament let's come up with some new ideas here this is all coming from scripture these are jews who read the tanakh constantly and then wrote they're using this look, let's look at jeremiah and jeremiah here is talking about Idolatry. Interesting. Idolatry and the living and true God seem to go together here, okay? Let's make a connection. Jeremiah 10, 1 through 11. Hear the word of Yahweh speaks to you. O house of Israel, thus says Yahweh, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down, and work with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. How many of you have ever heard this verse used against Christmas trees? Seriously. Now watch, watch, and here's why. I mean, they went in the woods, they cut down a tree, right? The craftsman, watch the next ones. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so they can't... That's a Christmas tree, Right? See, you're an idolater if you have a Christmas tree. Only if you're bowing down to that thing and worshiping it. All right? You know, Christians can be so foolish. Okay? The context here is idolatry. It's not Christmas or Christmas trees. But watch what he... Jeremiah, I love this. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Think about that picture, okay? What does a scarecrow do? Nothing. What can a scarecrow? Nothing. Sometimes you see the birds landing on its arms, you know, it's like they don't care. This dumb thing standing out there. All right. Now watch. He's just making fun of idolatry here. And you got to get the picture, right? He said they're like in a cucumber field. They cannot speak, right? They can't say anything. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them. I mean, he mocks them like, okay, when trouble comes, you've got to pick up your God and run. What kind of God is that that you have to rescue? You know? They cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Yahweh. You are great. And your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is bought from Tarshish and the gold from Euphaz. 
They are the work of the craftsmen and of their hands and of the goldsmith. You know, he mocks them in other passages, say, you go cut down a tree, you take half of it and you burn it for a fire to keep warm, and they worship the other half. Well, what if you burnt the wrong half? <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, the stupidity of it. But Yahweh, he says, is the true God. He is the living God. And the everlasting king, at his wrath the earth quakes, the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And notice what he's saying here. There's other gods. The gods that they didn't make the heavens and earth. They were created. They're going to perish. Their idols are nothing. But the true and the living God, he says, Jeremiah describes God here, in opposed to idolatry, as living and true. God is the supreme deity, the true deity. All other gods are going to perish, he says. Now, I think that the title living and true God also reflects the covenantal name of Yahweh. And I think he wants us to see that here. If we go back to Exodus 3.14. Remember, Moses is being sent by God. and He says, who should I say sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, I am who I am in the Hebrew is ehia asher ehia. And it means I am that which exists. The root of ehia is haya, which means to be or I exist. So here Eli. Elohim tells Moses his name is Ehia, I exist. But then look at the next verse, verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Elohim here again gives his name to Moses, but this time it is Yahweh. So people get confused. Well, what is it? Is it, is it Ehia or is it Yahweh? Both these names are related. Ehia is and Yahweh is. Ehia means I exist, I will exist, I am. Yahweh means, it, Yahweh includes the verb Hava, meaning to exist. And the letter Yod is a prefix meaning he. So Yahweh means he exists. Now, if it is a causative verb, it would mean he causes to exist. And both of these are true. Yahweh is the self-existent one who causes all things to exist. He is the living and the true God. He is himself exists and anything that exists is brought in by Him. He's the true, He's the living God. Now, the nature of God as living and true is brought out in the Greek text by the absence of the Greek article with the adjectives here. It's living and true. The anarthrous construction lays stress on the quality and nature of God as the one who is living and true in contrast to man's various idols, which are lifeless, false, and useless. They're like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Just dumb things that you've got to carry around. And I mean, it, you know, the, I love Jeremiah, just he mocks this whole thing so badly, you know. You people who worship in these dumb things that you made, now you're worshiping. 
And if you have trouble, you've got to carry them, you've got to pick them up and run with them because they can't go anywhere and they can't help you. All right? So he says, they turn from these idols to serve the living and true God. So let me ask before we move on here, how do we serve the living and true God? I mean, if you've got an idol, you bring a little sacrifice, you light a little candle, you do something like that. How do we gauge how, how are we to serve? How can we tell if we're really growing in our walk with the Lord? I think one of the ways to really gauge your Christian life is your willingness to serve those around you who can give nothing in return. To those who maybe have hurt us in the past, to those who we think are less deserving of our time and energy. This is not beyond our ability. This type of love and sacrifice does not come naturally. When someone hurts us, or they say bad things about us, uh, they break our hearts, our automatic reaction is to strike back, strike back. And when somebody is a taker, a user, a manipulator, our automatic response is to just run from them and never give them the time of day. But we serve the living and true God by loving others that's how we flesh it out and that's the you know the the commandments were boiled down to love god and love your neighbor how do you love god by serving your neighbor all right let's move on to the final verse in this chapter he says and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead yeshua who delivers us from the wrath to come all right first thing this verse is eschatological i know you all know what that means okay This verse is referring to the second coming of Christ at the end of the age. I think everybody would agree on that. All right, Leon Morris states that the second coming is mentioned an average of every 13 verses from Matthew to Revelation. That's a lot of mentioning. In other words, this is not a minor doctrine, people, in the Bible. Eschatology is not a minor doctrine. Now, Paul emphasizes the second coming of Christ in this letter. Every one of these five chapters ends with talking about the coming of Christ. Because the Thessalonians were confused about it. They were confused about what would happen to their brothers and sisters who died before the coming. They were concerned about the timing of the day of the Lord. They were concerned that maybe, did this already happen? Did we miss it? He says, they're to wait for his son from heaven. All right? Now, again, this is clearly a reference to the second coming at the end of the age. And again, nobody argues that. I haven't found any commentators, so this doesn't have to do with the second coming. So, the Thessalonians were waiting for Yeshua. All right, they were, they, had, they were serving the living and true God, and they were waiting for His Son from heaven. Let me ask you this. Why? Think with me. If the Lord has not returned yet, as the majority of the church believes, which is over 2,000 years later, why were they in the first century waiting on Christ to come? Let me ask you this. Would you wait for something that you knew you would never experience? What do you wait for when you think of waiting for something? You're waiting for something that's you, it's going to become a reality. That's why you're waiting on it. If you think there's no hope, no chance of that, I'm not waiting for that. i got better things to do, better things to think about. They're waiting for His Son from heaven. And 2,000 years later, 
preachers are still saying we need to wait for the sun from heaven. I'm like, mm, something's wrong here. Let's talk about wait, okay? Let's talk about that for a minute. Wait is from the Greek word onomeno. Mark that. Onomeno. Onomeno. That's going to be a, there's going to be a test on that, okay? Onomeno. This is the only time in the New Testament that this is used. See, a lot of times you want to find out, okay, they use a different they use a word, then you just search that word throughout the New Testament. See its usage. Because usage always takes precedence over etymology because words change. So we want to know, how did they use that word? We might not know the etymology, or we might know it, but maybe the usage is different than the etymology. So let we trace it. You can't trace this because this is the only time it's used. But it's found four times in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. They took the Hebrew Scriptures and they rewrote them in Greek. And so they use onomeno four times in the Septuagint. So we can get a little help from looking at the Septuagint and how it was used. Onomeno is from ana, which means upon. And Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says, it intensifies the meaning of mono, which means abide or remain. It conveys the meaning of expectant waiting, sustained, patient, trusting waiting. It pictures an eager looking forward to the coming of one whose arrival was anticipated at any time. Waiting for one whose coming is expected. Now, BDAG lexicon says it means to wait for, expect someone or something. And again, if you're a thinking human being, you wouldn't wait for something that you didn't expect to happen. If the second coming was thousands of years off, Paul would say, you dummy, stop waiting around, you know, governing your lives by this. You're never going to see it. It's not going to have anything to do with you. This is written. I wrote this for the people in America 2,000 years in the future. I'm just writing it to you, hoping they'll read your mail and pick up on it. Okay. In the complete biblical library, Greek English dictionary, Gilbrand states this. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. Gilbrandt is not a preterist, okay? He's a linguistic, all right? He says, in classical Greek, onomeno means waiting or staying in wait. <clears throat> the word carries a sense of anticipation of an impending event, okay? This is the Greek, This is what the, an impending event, something's about to happen. One such example is the use of onomeno in describing an army waiting for the enemy to attack. Picture that. That helps you understand. We're waiting for something that is eminent. It's going to happen, people. So we're on guard. We've got to be prepared. We can't be laying around sleeping. This thing is about to happen. All right, Gilbrandt goes on to say, onomeno is also used to mean delay or putting off. In other words, you're waiting because it hasn't gotten there yet, so you're waiting for it. The Septuagint use of onomeno to translate kava with the primary meaning of waiting with expectancy. In other words, he says a hired man is described as waiting for his wages in Job 7.2. So in Job 7.2, it says, like a slave who longs for the shadow 
and like a hired hand who looks on a meadow for his wages. So if you're looking for your wages, you're kind of, let's hurry up. I need this money, right? You're expecting it. You're waiting for it. It's not something in the distant future. In an extra biblical writing in 2 Clement 19.4, Anameno is used figuratively of time in the phrase, a blessed time awaits the devout. Again, something they're expecting, something they're waiting for. In another use, it describes debtors who are to pay up without waiting for the time allowed them. In other words, come on, get, we're expecting this, let's bring it on. So, Anameno means to remain in a place and or a state of mind with expectancy concerning a future event. To wait, to wait for. You might think of a parent who, in anticipation of a son or a daughter's arrival, waits up eagerly and expectantly. Automato means to expect with the added notion of waiting patiently and confidently, but not necessarily in a passive way. The Thessalonian Christians in the first century are waiting for the sun from heaven. Now, anameno is the present tense and can be rendered, keep on waiting. You keep on waiting for the sun. Waiting for the return of their Lord, that was their life. That, that was the habit of their life. That was the truth that covered all their daily activities and afflictions. The first century believers, to them, the advent of Christ was not regarded as a distant possibility it was an eminent certainty. I think that the fact that the first century believers in Thessalonica were waiting for Christ coming from heaven tells us that they expected to see it in their lifetime. Because why on earth would you look for something you will never see? Now, other verses in this letter imply that they expected this coming during their lifetime. I mean, that's their expe expectation. For example, look at 1 Thessalonians 4.15. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we who are alive. Now, let's start at the beginning. For this we declare, that's the apostles, that's Paul writing, we, me and the apostolic team, we declare this to you, the Thessalonians, by the word of the Lord, that we, that's all of them, the team and the Thessalonians, we who are alive. In other words, guess what? Some of us are going to be alive at the coming who are left until the coming of the Lord. So they're expecting this. Now, let me ask you this. Do you remember when I said this letter was written? Anybody? 50 to 51. So the eminent coming of the Lord to the Thessalonians was 19 or 20 years away. Okay? That's what they're waiting. And most of them would still be alive during that time. All right, some would die, but for the most part, we who are alive, the ones who remain, were left until the coming, so they expected some of them would be. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we, again, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So there's some of them going to be alive. Look at uh, verse five, or chapter 5, verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you. The day of the Lord is not going to surprise you. You're going to see it, but it's not going to surprise you because you know. 
So the first century Thessalonians believe and look for the second coming in their lifetime. They expected to see it. So you got Christians today looking to see the second coming, expecting it in their lifetime. Somebody's wrong. Thessalonians are wrong or we're wrong. Which is it? I'm going to go with us. Okay? All right. Well, here's the question. Where did they get this idea? Well, obviously, Paul was there. Paul taught him. Timothy taught him. Obviously, they taught him this. And Paul and Timothy most likely got it from the Lord, right? Because the Lord taught this same thing, too. Matthew 16, 27, 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels and the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. That's referring to the second coming. There's so many other verses that prove that. Now watch what He says. Truly I say to you, the people I'm talking to, the people that are standing here in front of me, there are some of you that are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So verse 27 clearly speaks of the second coming. His disciples don't, did, they didn't know he was leaving. They didn't understand that. But they looked for a time when he would appear in glory and power. That was the parousia. Bringing in the kingdom and rewarding every man. Now some say, well, this is talking about the transfiguration that happens in Matthew 17. But that's only six days later. So he looks at them and some of you will still be alive. Yeah, probably most of us in six days. None of them have died in that six-day period. Some think it refers to Pentecost. No, that doesn't fit either. That's only two months later, and all of them are still alive except Judas. But it does refer to his second coming, as I think can be seen clearly from comparing it with Revelation twenty-two twelve. He says he'll repay each person according to what he has done in Matthew. And in Revelation, he says to repay each person for what he has done. That's when the Lord comes, there's a recompense. He comes with his angels to reward every man. Now look at... Um, Verse 28 here. He says, I say to you, all right, the ones he is directly talking to, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man come into his kingdom. So who are the you of this verse? Well, verse 24 tells us that Yeshua is speaking to his disciples. Verse 24 says, then Yeshua told his disciples, some of you. So he's talking to the people that are alive, that are listening to him, and he he said he would return in the second coming, which at that time would be about 40 years away from this period. So 40 years away. But he said, you, some of you will still be alive. Now, let me ask you this. Verse uh, 28 there. What are the possible explanations for this verse? The Lord's telling his disciples, I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. In other words, you guys, some of you guys will still be alive at the second coming. What are the possibilities? Number one, some of the disciples are still alive, right? You like that one? Where are these old guys? Well, you could learn a lot from someone that's over 2,000 years old, you know? No, I don't, I don't really want to buy that one. Okay, the second, offer, the second maybe thing here is the Lord was confused or he was lying. No, no one likes that one either. There's a third possibility. Yeshua actually did what he said, and he came in the lifetime of the disciples. That seems to be the most sensible, but that's the most difficult for people to accept, all right? That's the only sensible choice. This seems like a simple and clear answer that holds to the inspiration of Scripture. Yeshua did what he said he would do. 
but doesn't, that doesn't fit our pattern, so most people want to reject that. Well, Yeshua also said in Matthew 24, 34, truly I say to you, again, the crowd he's talking to, this generation, the one I'm talking to, you, will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. The generation's 40 years, so he says, all this will happen within 40 years. He plainly and clearly tells his disciples, they'll be around. Some of them will still be there. This generation is not going to disappear until all this happens. Now, if you study the context, you'll see this. It includes the preaching of the gospel to the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the second coming. It's so clear that it greatly troubles those who hold to a futuristic eschatology. So Yeshua taught that his parousia would happen in that generation. He taught it would happen within a 40-year period. He taught that some of the disciples would still be alive. Paul taught the Thessalonians that some of them would live to see it. And now it was only 20 years away when Paul's teaching this. Paul taught all the churches that Christ would return in their lifetime. Look what he says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Okay, the the Corinthians, they're also waiting for this. The word wait here is not onomeno, because that's only used one time, right? This is a different Greek word. This is apekdekomai. This is an important word. This Greek word is made up of three words put together. The word to receive, which speaks of a welcoming, an appropriating reception, such as tendered to a friend who comes to visit. The word off Speaking here of withdrawal from one's affection from other objects. In other words, you're turning away from this other stuff because you're focusing on the coming of your friend. And the word out, here in a perfect sense, which intensifies the already existing meaning of the word. The composite word speaks of an attitude of intense yearning and eager waiting for the coming of the Lord. It's not just this, oh yeah, I hope it happens someday. They're anxiously waiting, expecting. They're excited about this happening. Now this Greek word, apekdekomai, is only used eight times in the Scripture. That's a whole lot better than once, but eight times. Seven of them are clearly in reference to the second coming. They all tie together that way. So apekdekomai is used three times in Romans 8. He says, for the creation waits, apekdekomai, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, the sons of God were going to be revealed when the Lord returned. Because God was going to destroy Jerusalem and make it very clear that the Christians were His children, not the Jews. In verse 23 it says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. For adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. They're going to be adopted when the Lord returned. He was going to bring them into His family. We're going to be redeemed. Now, here's what a lot of people don't understand. I think most preterists do, but redemption is tied to the second coming. Until the Lord returns, man doesn't have everlasting life. Man is not redeemed. Adoption is not full. Righteousness is not complete. Until the Lord returns. So if He still hasn't returned... When you go to a funeral and they say they're in heaven, say, no, they're not. Not according to Scripture. Redemption is tied to the second coming. Look at Luke 21, 27, 28. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is referring to the second coming. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your head because your redemption 
is drawing near. What are the these things? Well, the these things in the context of this verse is the destruction of Jerusalem. All right, when you see that, see, redemption was not complete when the Lord, only complete when the Lord returned, destroying Jerusalem, putting end to the old covenant, consummating the new covenant. Romans 8.25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The context of all these verses in Romans 8 is that of the second coming. Now look at Galatians 5.5. It says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves, apectecomai, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So again, this is one of the things that's fulfilled at the second coming. See, if, if righteousness had already been fulfilled, or if it was already complete, Paul made a big mistake by making righteousness by faith a matter of hope. If righteousness was a present reality, why would you hope for it? This is one of those already but not yet verses, because righteous they had righteousness in a sense, but it was not complete until the Lord returned. It would not be a complete reality until the second coming. That's why Paul uses the verb here, apek decomai, it's tied in with the second coming. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Again, second coming, very clear here. Not to deal with sin, he already dealt that with his first coming, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Notice in this verse in Hebrews that when Christ appears the second time, it's for salvation. That's when salvation becomes complete. So the Lord that they eagerly waited for was to bring them righteousness at the parousia. Philippians 3.20 Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait, apakdekomai, a Savior, the Lord Yeshua Christ. Who is the we here? Who was eagerly waiting for the Lord? It was... Paul's writing to the Philippians, right? So the Philippian Christians who lived in the first century, it was these first century Saints who are awaiting the second coming. Why did they think he would come in their lifetime? Because Paul taught this to all the churches. The Lord taught this. Paul taught this. Well, let's pull in some other people. John taught this. He taught an eminent parousia. Look at 1 John 2.28. And now, little children, abide in him. So when he appears, and this is what the Thessalonians were doing, they were abiding in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. They expected it in their lifetime. They expected we, when this happens, we'll have confidence because we're going to see it. John also wrote Revelation and he says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. I wonder what that word means, soon. Somehow, I don't think the etymology can be stretched 2,000 years, or the usage, all right? How about James? James also taught an eminent parousia. He says, be patient, therefore, my brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Again, why you be patient for something you're not going to see? He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he received the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You, you first century people that I'm writing to, you be patient. The coming of the Lord is near. Now, Peter got in on it too. They all got messed up by this doctrine. Right? They probably all got this from their Lord. Okay, so then you went down the trail and they're all teaching the same thing. Peter teaches an eminent coming. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Waiting here is a different Greek word. This is prosdokeia, which means to anticipate by implication to await, to expect. So the return of Yeshua is mentioned in every one of the New Testament books. People say except Galatians, but it's alluded to in there in Galatians because righteousness is part of the second coming. And it's also not mentioned in the very short books of 3 John and Philemon. 2 John, 3 John, and Philemon. So any other book, you're going to hear about it. The return of Christ is a major theme of the New Testament. And as you study this theme of the return of Christ, you're going to find that the first century church expected the Lord to return in their lifetime. Unbelievers see this. A lot of people see this. And they just think they were messed up. They shouldn't have thought that. They got the wrong idea. As Schofield said, they had the wrong idea, but they got it from their Lord. (laughs) Okay? They thought this because Yeshua taught this. He taught a first century parousia. And so did all the New Testament authors. That's why they had this idea. So why does the majority of churchianity today reject a first century coming of Christ? Why can't they see this? Well, I think the thing that really blocks people's comprehension here is because they're looking for a physical event. Okay? They have in their minds the coming of Christ is physical. When He comes, the earth will burn up. Everything will be new. It's just all gone. All We start all over. It's all new. They have a physical event in mind, so they say, I know the Lord said soon, but they, they make up some kind of excuse for that, and it can't mean what it said. I know the Thessalonians, they're waiting, but huh, they're just confused. And here's what I think. Just like the Jews missed the first coming because they were looking for a physical event. They didn't want a spiritual Messiah to set them free from sin and death. They wanted a physical deliverer to free them from Rome. And so when Yeshua shows up, they're like, come on, where's your army? No, they rejected him. We don't want this spiritual nonsense. We want a physical deliverer. The same thing is happening in the church. Oh, we're not going to accept that the Lord came. Spiritually, they mock that. Like, spiritual coming, that's like really bad. Okay, physical and spiritual, which one do you want? Okay? <laughs> They're so locked into the physical. First century church missed the first coming. The church today misses the second coming. They're locked into the physical. And we'll talk about this next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I... Sometimes I get so confused because I don't understand. This seems so clear to me, Lord. I know I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but man, this seems so clear to me. Help me, Lord, to see what I'm missing on this. Lord, I pray you'd give us as your people insight into the truth of your word. May we take it for what it says. May we try to understand it like the first century saints did, Lord. Help us to realize we're reading somebody else's mail and it had significance to them, had meaning to them. Teach us, Father. May we apply what we learn. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? Gary? Uh, I'm going to save it until next week. Do what? I'm going to save it until next week. Save it until next week. Are you going to see if I answer it, huh? I got a couple questions here online. 
What do you see is the greatest ramifications for the church today to miss the spiritual coming of Christ? I can just tell you what this did for me, okay? Keith, when I came to see this, it just drove into my heart the, the truth of the inspiration of Scripture. That I could believe the Lord when He said something. I didn't have to make excuses and doubt. Oh, oh yeah, He said He was coming, but I know He said He told everybody He was coming soon. He was tricking them all. He made something. No, I could just look. The Lord said it and He did People, preterism is the simplest eschatology there is. Read the Bible, believe it. You don't need charts and graphs, and He came here, and then the rapture's here, and the second coming's here, and this, you know, you don't need all that stuff. You just say, okay, He said it, He did it. It was spiritual, it wasn't physical. And again, we'll talk about that next week, but that's, you know, so the sad thing to me is the church today is looking for something they already have. You know, God said, I will dwell with my people in Revelation 21. That was the promise of the new covenant. I will dwell with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And right now we have access 24-7 to God. He dwells among us, and the church says, won't that be great when that happens? It is great. But how sad to miss something that you already have. It's just sad. I don't know how else you could, you know, how else you could put something like that. So wasn't his question, what do you think the ramifications are for the Yeah, I think the ramifications are they're missing what they have. They're not enjoying what they already have. They're looking for something. And here, you know, I heard something. I heard some guy last week on a podcast I'm watching. It's a political podcast, okay? But he starts getting into, oh, we were talking. Me and the boys, we're sitting around the pool. We're talking. Oh, man, you know, revelation. This is about to happen. This stuff is is serious. And he's terrified. This is... This is what we're looking forward to. And I'm thinking, I could set you straight in a few minutes, you know. You don't need to worry about all that stuff in Revelation. Because he said, soon, 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 soon. And it's over. It's about Jerusalem. And it's done. It's not about you. It's not about... There's so many freeing things from knowing the truth. You know, when the Lord said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. That is an absolute truth. People, listen, in any area, medically, physically, spiritually, knowing the truth sets you free. And, and listen, in the last week, all of our new leaders, Yunkin, um, Winsome, Mieris, they've all said the masks do not work. There is not a bit of science behind a mask. They don't work. It's been jammed down our throat. It's wrong, and we're not doing this to our kids anymore. They're damaging to kids. We're stopping it. And I'm like, oh my word, somebody with some lick of sense saying some things. You know, when people come to us and say, you should do this because of this. In other words, wear masks. Show me the peer-reviewed study. Show me the study that says, here's why masks are helpful. Not one, people. They can't produce one because there is none. Okay? There's no peer-reviewed study because they don't work. The doctors wear them so they don't spit on you when they got you cut open. Not so germs don't get in them. Gary... Approaching my question for next week, that um, the ramifications of not understanding this is the society we have today. The Christians are so looking at the physical or looking for their second coming, they're missing what's going on around them. They're not engaged in the world. They're not being examples. They're not being Thessalonians. 
Well, that's like, you know, dispensationalism's buzz phrase was why polish brass on a sinking ship? In other words, this is all going down. Why be involved in anything? Why be involved in government? Why be involved in, you know, the arts? Why be involved in something? Why be involved in it? It's all going to burn. And man, we missed so much. So much. Because we're, you know, we're thinking, hey, it's not part of us. Hey, Dave, John and Wren from New York. Would you consider it idolatry when people believe doctrines about Yahweh, Yeshua, that clearly disagree with the Scripture? Yeah, that, and that's one of the things I talked about. I think thinking the wrong things about God can be classified as idolatry, such as Arminianism, which teaches a God who is not sovereign over salvation. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that I would go to that level as far as Arminians. Okay, I don't, you know, I, I draw the line on some things, um, you know, some people would consider me an isolationist because I'm not going to help fellowship. I'm not going to be around certain people who believe certain things. But that's going to be very specific. And I'm talking about the doctrine of Christ. Somebody says to me, Yeshua is not God. Boom. Okay, I'm sorry. That's idolatry. He, if he's not God, who is he? None of us are saved and it's all a mess. Okay, so there's certain things. You know, salvation is by grace through faith alone. Certain things. I'm going to draw a hard line. Okay, I think Armini- I, I know Armenians are Christians some, if they've trusted Christ. The reason I know is because I was an Armenian for many years in my Christian life. I loved the Lord, okay? I did. I was just confused. Did you know? Okay? Huh? <laughs> no, I'm not one of those Calvinists who say, if you're not a Calvinist, you're not a Christian. I don't believe that. I, and, and here's what I thank God for. At one time in my Christian life, I believed everything that I disagree with now. I mean, really, I held to every wrong doctrine there was. I started in the absolute wrong place so I could get to where I am today so I could have maybe some compassion on people who are not where they are, right? You know where they should be right now. But no, I'm not going to... Again, I think Arminians are confused and I think it's sad to hold an Arminian doctrine because it puts too much on you. Let God... God's in control. Just rest in that, man. That is so... uh, So that's where I'm at on the whole Arminian thing. When did today's errant eschatology become the accepted norm? I think it did with, with Schofield and the Schofield Bible and the Darby and that whole thing. I think that's when it you know, became the norm. Because, and here's again, we have to understand, history at that time, the, um, the opponents of Christianity were saying, see, Yeshua lied, look it. All the, these, these liberal scholars were saying, he said he's coming back to that generation. He didn't do it. You're wrong. Christianity's wrong. And so dispensation come up, well, he said that, but we stopped the clock. And I mean, literally, they think we stopped the clock, the clock's not running anymore. He's dealing with the church. Okay, when the church age is over, he starts the clock, and now it's soon again. So that's their way of dealing with the nonsense, which is, again, so crazy. But I think that's when it really happened, and I think people just... See, eschatology has never been to the forefront of the church. They've never had a church council, a church creed, dealing with eschatology. And I think today is the day of eschatology. I think today people are more aware, more alert to this than I think they ever have been. Wow, these questions. Oh, here's a question. Are you saying that Jesus Christ came in A.D. 70? Yes, absolutely, positively. And hang on, and I'll, we'll get into that more next week, and I'll explain to you exactly how He did come and what was the manifestation of His coming. (laughs) 
Um, hey, Bill. Thanks for watching. Good to have you with us. Bill said, John Calvin described our hearts as idle factories. How true is that, people? You know, it's just so easy to put something before the Lord. So don't think of it as... Uh, Lynn Brooks. Hey, Lynn. Appreciate you watching. She says, I believe one of the ramifications for today is that preterism is hopeful as opposed to feeling the end of the world as we know it. Amen, Lynn. I agree with you 100% on that. It's an eschatology of hope. Like I said, this guy I listened to last week, he was, I could see the anguish in him. I mean, again, he's one of these, what they call truthers, politics-wise, and he's, you know, it's about to get better, Trump's about to come back, everything's about to be wonderful, and then he goes, but, then Revelation. And it's like, it's all wiped out. You know, so I, I just, and I felt so, oh, sad for him. You know, that I could, because like I said, you could see the anguish. Read Revelation, and if you think that's what you're looking forward to, that's horrible. Okay? That's horrible. Someone asks, isn't it Christ's faith that saves us, not ours? No, we, we are the ones who believe, but the faith is a gift from God. He gives us the gift. You have to believe. It's not Christ believes, so you get in. You have to believe. That's the response, though, of the new birth. 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been, past tense, born of God. God gave you birth. Now you have the ability to believe, and you will believe if God gives you the new birth. That's just how it works. Mike Sullivan says, according to Luke 17, 20-37, whoa, Mike, you take, you're typing more in here. Jesus teaches when he is revealed from heaven, they would not be able to see that the kingdom would come, not hear or see it there. Amazing how Jesus says when he is revealed from heaven, he would not be able to physically see the kingdom has come because it would be within. And yet, futurists mock us because they can't see physically see the kingdom. Good point, Mark. Mike, I mean, that, that's right. You know, they, that's what he says. The kingdom of God, he said, is among you. It's here. You don't see it. You know, but they're looking to see something because they misunderstand some verses. They go to Peter. Oh, man, it's going to be burning up. And they don't understand what it's talking about. Again, because they're not that familiar with the Old Testament, the Tanakh. And so, therefore, you just get crazy out of whack with what it's actually saying. <laughs> uh, Bob says Bob Crookshank Jr. says full preterism is the true eschatology of victory amen I mean we win it's awesome we're in the, we're in the kingdom now the new covenant is synonymous with the kingdom we're in it we're reigning with Christ we're in his presence we have access to, I don't have to get a sacrifice and go to the temple to try to worship God. He's with me 24-7. I can talk to him anytime I want. When I go to bed at night, when I wake up in the morning, it's just God is there with us. We're His temple. We're sacred space. If you think of yourself as sacred space, it might change some of the things you think and do. Okay? Did you have something to say, Kev? Said just YFI, 101 people watching online. Oh, cool. And hey, speak of Canada, okay? Mm. The truckers, you know, they say two weeks to slow the curve, okay? In other words, they're going to stay up there. Did you know what's happening lately? Did you know the farmers have joined them? Mm. 
the farmers got on their tractors and they drove into Ottawa and now the whole place is jammed up. Tractors, truckers. The government has called the tow company and said, will you get in here and get these trucks out? You know what the tow company said? We have COVID. <laughs> we the people. Okay, that's how things change. That's how they change. They don't change by you putting a mask on, doing everything they say. That doesn't change anything. You resist, and they're resisting peacefully. They're not burning buildings. They're not doing anything, but they're just showing up and blocking everything up. Listen, if the truckers stay on strike for a long time, guess how you get your food? Guess how you get everything you get? They're going to choke the supply chain until somebody bows to this. And now with the farmers in there, hey, people, we're we're not going to eat. You know, Canada's not going to eat. And the American truckers are planning the same thing to go to D.C. Okay? They're planning a trip to D.C. They're going to get in their trucks and go there and clog the whole place up. Okay? But let me tell you something, people. Uh, not to be a conspiracy theorist wacko. I am one, but not to be one. But if you, you know, there's cameras, you can watch the White House. If you watch what's going on there, you know something's happening here. They built a wall all the way around the White House. A wall. A cement demolition wall all the way around the White House. Just so many buildings in D.C. have been shut down and boarded up. It is, things are, you know, nothing normal is going on there. And people say, oh, nothing's happening. Oh, there's a lot of good stuff happening. Okay, I don't want to get off on the politics here. Let's, oh my word, questions are still coming in. <laughs> Full preterism upholds the deity of Christ. I agree with that. What? Okay. <laughs> okay, th- yeah, here's, here's a cool... Are you post-millennialist? Well, technically, I guess I could fall under post-millennialist, you know, but no, I'm preterist. I'm full preterist. Again, we're going to come back next week and talk about this. Here's one of the cool things that Garrett just reminded me of. We're, we're broadcasting out of four different platforms, okay? We're, we're YouTube, right? Facebook, Rumble, and live stream. So we got four things going out, so more and more people have the opportunity to watch us on different platforms, so that's amazing. Huh? Yes, we're live on Rumble. Say first time we're live on Rumble. We signed up today, we paid our money, and now we can broadcast. And it's very expensive to broadcast on Rumble. Ten dollars a month. So we're, we're we are break we are breaking the bank to get the word out. Okay, we're gonna break the bank to get the word out. All right. I'm going to close in prayer because we went long again. We, I say we, we, we went long. It's y'all, y'all joining, y'all joining with me in this. No, the we is all the questions. You know, I got to try. I am, thank you for your questions. I am so excited to be able to do that, you know, to just get the questions live and answer them because that's, I want to be clear, not confusing. But yeah, I love the question. Am I saying Christ came in 8070? Yep. Uh, thank you. I really am saying that. And next week we'll talk about more as we get into that verse and I'll show you how he came. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the opportunity, Lord, to share your word. I thank you for all these different platforms that the word can go out in so many different areas, Lord. And, and I'm thankful that with all the censorship going on now, we're, we're moving into areas that not going to be censored, where we can still say what we want to say. And Lord, I want to thank you for Gab. I want to thank you for that free platform. Lord, I want to thank you for Andrew and his commitment to truth and just the opportunity where Christians can go and share anything they want and not be censored, not be blocked. We can talk to our friends. We can tell our friends whatever we want. Thank you, Lord, for Andrew and his commitment to free speech. 
We love you, Lord. Thank you for your grace to us. Empower us, Lord, with the truth of your word that we may live lives of holiness for you, Father. Amen.